All right, well, this week we're going to continue reading in Exodus. So if you would please make your way to chapter 19. And if you would stand with us for the reading of the word. I'll be reading from the NASB, chapter 19 of Exodus. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and, wa and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the mountain, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Be to God, and thank you for honoring God's word. And Doug and Carla, thank you for living out your faith among us and for all you do to serve uh, even beyond the church. We give thanks for you. 
You know, it's a very bad thing for any person to lack purpose in life. That I think it's true to say when you lack purpose or you, you lack meaning, you really lack your, your, your reason for living, and we see that all too often. I think Viktor Frankl's uh, famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, I mean, he's asking that big question, that what is our purpose, what gets us up in the morning? And most of the time, when we, we take a moment to think about that, we, we fall into very routine daily things. Well, I think my purpose is in my family or in my work or in my friendships, something on that level. And I hope today in our time, what we'll see in chapter 19 is that there's a grand purpose, a grand purpose for God's people that's way beyond any of those things that are so very fragile, but rather it's anchored in the character of God. In fact, dare I say, dare I say that our purpose is the priesthood. And so we'll unpack that here in our moments together, and we'll begin by just noting something very, uh, it's a zoom out on the text of Exodus, something that's uh, obvious at one level, but really uh, needs to be worked out, and that is that the first 18 chapters focus on this theme of redemption and deliverance. Then most of what we know from Hollywood takes place in these parts, that you remember God's people are enslaved, it looks like God's promise to liberate his people is long lost, but God chooses this guy, Moses, and he triumphs over Pharaoh, delivering those ten judgments, or the ten plagues, as you call them. They cross through the Red Sea, are established as a congregation. That's very important. And so they've been delivered from the hand of slavery. Now, on this hinge, the 19.1 is the hinge for the book, you now pivot to Mount Sinai. That the rest of the book of Exodus takes place at this location, at the base of Mount Sinai, so does all the content of Leviticus is delivered there and Numbers 1 through 10. So there's a geographical movement out of the land of Egypt to the base of Mount Sinai for the inauguration of this all-important Sinai covenant. So remember that, that 91, big pivot in the book, redemption, now to Mount Sinai. And then I really want us to focus today on verses 4 through 6, that this has been called the Great Commission of the Old Testament that here as we see the key to, to all of it, what God is doing by redeeming his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and here we go, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." So that's the great commission of the Old Testament. God's called the people to himself, that they're to be distinct, they're to be a holy nation, and they're in fact to be a kingdom of priests. You see, friends, God has delivered his people for a purpose. And that purpose is to represent him, to represent his kingdom, and that as we go through God's people, right, to all the non-believing nations, all the non-believing people, to see what it's like to have God as king and to come to know him in a real and personal way. Now, I'll say this, and again, I have to be careful here. I'm going to define my terms. When in the pulpit I talk about theological liberalism, I'm not talking at all anything to do with politics. I don't want to think, here we go, even Shaw, you know, is going off on politics and say, no. 
Theological liberalism is a product of 19th century uh, historical movements, right? After the Enlightenment, what happened is you had a lot of people saying, well, you know, we can't detect God scientifically and all these miracles are a bit, uh, you know, embarrassing to the enlightened mind and all that, you know, Jesus absorbing uh, God's wrath on the cross for sinners like us. So that's a bit embarrassing uh, for us enlightened folk. What we'll do is we'll kind of flatten theology out to make it all on the horizontal plane, that it's all going to be about uh, what we can do here and now through politics and through education, and that part uh, everybody's on board with. In a way, what liberal theology does is it takes the first half of Exodus and, and kind of leaves it at that, that you have an oppressed people, that the Egyptians are enslavers, that what we should be striving for is to make people's lives easier, to give them political freedom, and what it does is it chops off the Great Commission that God has liberated his people for a purpose. And that purpose really, yes, it has a horizontal dimension to take care of others and to look after them, but it is ultimately vertical, right? That we're to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, we'll explore what that means, so that the name of God might go forth and his creatures could be reconciled to him. You say, that's why I love a group like Love, Inc. You listen to Bruce, what did he say? The command to take care and love others in our midst is obviously there. No student of the Bible, right? We put ourselves under the Bible, say we want to do all the good that we can to care for as many people as we can in very real ways, to use our time, talents, and treasures to, to bless people in, in material ways, in real ways, while also pointing them to the most important truth that God is reconciling his creation to himself through the Lord Jesus that there's deliverance on the human planes, but more importantly, there is deliverance on the divine plane that God has removed his people out of the bondage of slavery for a purpose. And again, that purpose that they might be his treasured possession, that they might be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests so that all the non-believing people in the world would come to know the true God. Now, I'll unpack this great commission of the Old Testament. We'll have time today to just look briefly at those two very intimidating uh, sections or those two intimidating uh, facets of the calling first the holy nation and then we'll look at the kingdom of priests so what about the holy nation how are god's people a holy nation i probably should begin with this say some of you saying well what does this have to do with us i mean this is you know delivered to the the ethnic jews uh you know depending on how you date, date moses 3400 years ago what does this have to do with us and i challenge you those who know your bible well you said i've seen this language before and it wasn't from Exodus 19. It's probably from 1 Peter 2. Now here, St. Peter is writing to the Christians, and he's saying, listen to this, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, what Peter's saying is that promise for God's people uh, to be distinct, to be his treasured people as all the way through the Bible. God's calling a people to himself to be redeemed, to represent him, that we're to be set apart. Now, we'll begin again now with this. So very obvious, but so very crucial for the people of God. Look at the grand movement of Exodus. It goes against our flesh. It goes against all the other world religions. And what I'm driving at is this. The movement crucially, is deliverance and then covenant and a command to obey. 
the first 18 chapters are about God getting the people out, redeeming the people, and now we're going to get to the law and the command to obey. And you say exactly what happens in verse 4. Listen to what God's saying. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. I don't know enough about birds to talk about that, but I guess, you know, do, do eagles carry their baby birds on their wings? But a great act of deliverance, only God could do it. And I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey, I'm going to give you the covenant in that order. So you say, this is very counterintuitive. God redeems the people, then gives them the stipulations of what it means to be his people. All other world religions and the default position of the fallen mind says, well, no, I need to obey first. I need the rules of the game first. I need the law first. And if I'm good enough at doing the law, then maybe God will redeem me. So you think of the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, the Five Pillars of Islam, or say our own flesh. You say, I got to earn it. I got to do it. And you hope that if you're able to do the law enough, that just maybe at the end of the day, right, the, the big scales up in glory, that hopefully the good things that you've done outweigh the bad things in life, and that's how maybe God will, will ultimately deliver you. Say, message of Exodus is the same, it's the gospel all the way through. God didn't redeem the Israelites because they were better behaved than everybody else. He didn't redeem them because they were more clever. He didn't redeem them because they were more powerful. I mean, read Deuteronomy 7, 7, you know, it didn't, you, you were the least impressive people. What's the point? God delivered his people to stay faithful to his promise and out of his grace. I have brought you out of an impossible situation. I've delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, not because of your merit, but because of God's kindness. Now, in light of the fact that the Israelites are redeemed, they're given the gift of the law the gift of the covenant so they might live out this calling to be a holy nation. Can you see that movement? Because otherwise what happens is that if we think we got to make it in, right? If the stipulations of the law are the terms by which we make it in, we become very quickly enslaved. How do I know when I've done enough? What happens when I don't get it right? Uh, how many good things do I have to do to make up for the bad things? I don't really know, right, where this goes. Is, am I just playing the game? Well, as long as I can find some chap over here who's a little bit worse than I am, I know that I got a shot to make it in. You say it's a terrible game to be playing to claw your way up to God. But in Exodus, very plain for us to see. It's redemption of no merit of the Israelites. It's anchored in the character and the grace of God and his promises. And in light of the people being redeemed, they're then graciously given the gift of the law, and by that law, that as they live it out, it is for their benefit and for the glory of God. Now, this is called, verse 5, we've talked about this word before, big, big, the whole Bible comes under this term, really, a, a covenant. That it's a covenant agreement. It is that I will, God saying, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people, and this is the agreement that as I, will, I will be faithful to you, of course, God will, and as you live out your life, this is what it looks like to be my people. Now, something you'll read about here, if you're into, uh, you know, thinking about this, I think this is important for us. That in the ancient Near East, of which Exodus is a product of ancient Near Eastern uh, culture, that there's all kinds of treaties between uh, governments. They're called vassal treaties. So a couple have survived from the Hittite culture. And they'll say that the Hittite vassal treaties, where you have a king, uh, they resemble, they take a very clear order where there's a preamble, there's a history of the relationship, there's a stipulation of the terms, and then both sides kind of accept it. And the commentators will be quick to point out that Exodus 19, the beginning, kind of takes on that form. 
that our God in his kindness would condescend in his grace to come down to our level and enter into a covenant agreement with his people to make it so very plain to us, right, that he's the one who delivers us and that we can be his people as we obey him and through that, that other nations will come to know, other people will come to know the true God. That's what the covenant is. God's going to say, I've done this, I've delivered you, you're mine. Now you go out and this is your purpose, to represent me and you'll flourish. Now what about laws? Uh, this, you know, you're talking to non-believers, and this comes up, I think, pretty quickly. Well, I don't, I don't need all those rules. Uh, no thanks, I'm in, into this, you know, kind of libertarianism that's popular now, and the last thing I need is, is laws and rules. The way I'd have us think about this is if you, you look at any legal philosophy, the laws just aren't hanging out there. This is what you think as a teenager, right? It's just like your parents make rules and the rules are hanging out and it's just a way for them to keep you down and to ruin your fun and they're not attached to anything. They're just rules, rules, rules. See, that's a very bad legal philosophy. That when you read any good legal philosophy, I'm talking about something like the, you know, the Federalist Papers, if you know, you Madison and Hamilton talk a lot about this kind of thing. What kind of government and what kind of laws were passing say something about the virtues we want the people to have. That good laws reflect the character of the lawgiver, and they can mold and shape the people. Uh, so you say, might say, well, the reason why we have certain laws on the book, again, is not just to ruin people's fun, of course not, but rather that they to shape a virtuous citizenry, citizenry, and that reinforces, right, a good lawmaking, that there's a relationship between laws and the character building of the nation. Now, different subject there about where we're going, but think about this. So God's saying, I've called you out, out of my promise, out of my grace. Now, here's the, the way in which I'd want my people to live. Do we see that as an onerous law book? Or do we see it as an act of God's kindness that tells us about his character and tells us what it's like to live under him and how to flourish, right? And that's the point, that they're to listen, you notice, right? They're to listen to God's voice, to be obedient to God. It's a call to obedience that his laws will shape us. They will mold us. They will grow us. They will increase our impact. And that's a much different view uh, than, than, say, God ruining our fun. Now, how practically, you say you're following so far, you're a holy nation, a consecrated people to live differently. How practically might, you know, what, what does that really look like for us today? Is it three big buckets? You know, you say big view of things, three big buckets where I think God's people can live differently. How we think about power, how we think about material, and how we think about sex. See, oftentimes when I, you know, tempted to go off the rails or I think back, you know, before I was serious about my faith, say, yeah, most of the time I went off the rails with a misguided view of one of those three things. How I viewed power, right? That I want to be recognized. I want to throw my weight around. I want to have uh, more influence. Ultimately, selfish view of my own self-worth. You could put that in the power bucket, you know, the material bucket. Well, if you don't have God in your life, I suppose material is where you get your security. I don't know where else it would be, quite frankly, to say, well, that's, that is my hope, and that's you know, how I'm insulated from the problems of the world. So we spend a lot of energy trying to, to uh, get more stuff, which we, again, think will protect us from our scariest things, or, or lastly, sex, right? How we use our bodies. 
And that third one created great opportunity for Christians for a long time in our nation's history that there was good overlap between the non-Christian consensus and the Christian consensus. But I wish I would have paid more attention to God's good law in this area as a young person to say God's laws are not to ruin my fun. They're not to dampen my pleasure, but they're there for my protection. And they're there for the long-term benefit of flourishing and living out my ultimate purpose. So this is the language about setting limits. You can look there at verse 15, kind of an odd line. As the people are preparing, right, they're being set apart to meet God, that they're not to have relations, the men aren't to have relations with their wives. Uh, Let's be very clear, the Bible is for marriage, it's for intimacy in marriage, it's absolutely unambiguous about that. So what's going on here? What God's saying is, Uh, the way that we're to think about our bodies is secondary to the things of God. See, that's a big difference from our culture, right? You listen to certain voices in the culture that to self-actualize is to express yourself sexually. I mean, that's very tied to your identity and your purpose. I can't possibly find my purpose unless I'm self-actualized and indulging in that area. Versus God's people to say, no, that actually takes a, a back seat. That the purposes of God are first. And so think about that as we face this call that God has redeemed his people, not because they're better than everybody else, but because he's been so very kind to us. Then out of his grace, he's given us the covenant. And the covenant is not an onerous list of rules, but something that shows God his character, that's molding his people into his virtuous character, and that as we obey them and heed them and walk in them, that they're for our own good, and we have a wonderful opportunity as a church to how we speak and think about power, money, and sex. So we are a holy nation, and we understand the relationship between redemption and law. Secondly, uh, is this notion of the priesthood. Now, I've had to exercise great patience with all of you going through these first 18 chapters, not to bring up this point. Some of you, you probably, if you're following along, you say, I wonder why he hasn't mentioned this theme, because it's so very... Well, I, I bring it out today, and it's this. That Moses acts throughout the book as a mediator between the people and God. You can go back to chapter 4. You say Moses is the, is the go-between. Another way I could say this is, as you've read this whole book, if I asked you, say, is God near to the people? Or is he lofty and far away from the people, kind of powerful and out there? And I think you're reading the book, and if, if you're saying, well, it's both, I think that's exactly right. God is incredibly other that he's powerful, he's made the, the, made the world, he controls Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the Mediterranean world, he's got him in the palm of his hand, say, God is totally other, he's powerful, he's intimidating, he's not to be messed with, he's out there, and yet God wants to come down to his people. You know, back to chapter two, it's very moving, right, that their people are groaning in hardship, and there's that little line at the end of chapter two of Exodus that said, but God knew. You say, God knows, he's intimate. And you say, whenever that's the case, right, we want God to both be out there and down here, that you call for a mediator, and you see how Moses, and chapter 19 is very good for this. I just want you, you go back and read it. Three ways, you just see Moses being this, this figure who's representing God to the people and then representing the people back towards God. You see it in the geographical movement, right? Moses is going up and going down. You say verse 20 and 21, right? Moses went up and Moses comes down. He goes up to be with God and he comes back down to the people. So his very movements through this show that he's in this mediating office. Secondly, you'll notice that Moses speaks for God. That Moses takes the words of God and communicates to the people. And then thirdly, 
this language about consecrating the people. Why do they're washing their garments and you know all the setting of limits and so forth? Moses, verse 10, is to consecrate the people. He's to prepare the people to encounter God. Now, this role, this role is what we think of as what a, a priest or a pastor does. You say, if you really think about it, what am I trying to do on a Sunday morning? Well, I, you know, trying to bring all of us under the word of God so that we might be faithful to him. And then the day that we're called home to meet the Lord Jesus, we're prepared for that to say what Moses is doing is something like a, it's a, it's a priestly pastoral function. He's representing God to the people and then making sure the people are prepared to meet God, you see? Now, why do I bring this up? Say, who are the priests? You might say, well, we got Shaw. You know, he's up there 25, or if he's having an off day like today, he's going to be closer to 35 or something like that. You know, he's, he's, that's the priest. He's, you know, doing his thing. Say, or the Levites in the Hebrew Bible. Say, but say, go back to the Great Commission. Say, we're to be a people set apart, a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests that we're all to do this activity of representing God both to one another, right? To pushing each other towards God so that we're a church built up into maturity, Ephesians 4. And as we go out into the world to represent the Lord Jesus, that we're to do that activity and to make sure our own lives are set apart, that we're obedient to God. You see, we're all, in a way, priests. They say, well, I have no qualifications to do that. I say, that's right, none of us do. And that's why the Bible presents the Lord Jesus as the great high priest. You see, in Hebrews chapter 3, I think touching upon really everything we've studied in Exodus, listen to what the author says. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. It goes on to say that Moses, yes, he built the house of Israel as a servant, to testify to what God said, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we're his house. That Jesus is the only sinless priest. That Moses is a type, he's a promise, he's a shadow, to use that, right? He's a, he's a figure there, he's doing mediating. We see this need, right? God's up there and he's out there, but he wants to come down to his people and be among them and minister to them. We need a mediator, it's Moses, as flawed as he is, as great as he is, from the human who, who do we have? Well, it points forward to the great high priest, Jesus, God's very son. Who better to represent God? Who better to represent man? Say, in the God-man dispute, God puts forth the God-man. That Jesus represents God to us, and then he understands us and sympathizes with us in his humanity. And say, all of us who are with Christ, that we have the great high priest, and that as we go forth, that in him we're a consecrated people. We are that, verse 10, we are that kingdom of priests. You know, last week after service, I was, had the privilege of going down to Fairview Hospital. It was, a, it was a serious situation. I was going to pray with the people, and the weather was bad. I have a wonderful father, and my dad said, well, let me go down there to Fairview with you. And so the two of us went down and walked into Fairview. We both had our Bibles, you know, and I'm going up to 
fourth floor, wherever it was, and dad was going to stay in the lobby and, and read his Bible. And so I go upstairs and pray. And I come back down after a time, and I say, well, dad, how did it go down here? He said, well, it went great. Uh, that I, I, I prayed with a person, and another person saw me reading my Bible and offered to polish my shoes at their local shoe shop. I was like, well, that's great. They, they think you're a pastor. Said, Don't they know you, you sell insurance, dad? I'm the pastor. So I say, but I would have been wrong, wouldn't I? Dad, the insurance salesman was the priest. He represented God to the people. And he realized that he had a mission there. So you're the priest. That we're to live differently. We think differently about power. We think differently about stuff. We use our bodies differently. That God's called us to something way beyond our jobs or even our relationships, but actually to represent him that we're priests mediating. Now, you're not a Christian here today. Very glad you're here, came with a friend or something, or just still kind of the new year thinking about this. You might be, I hope you're thinking deeply about purpose. So maybe you've just gotten to a point in your life where you've been, you know, had other people insulating you, but now time's gotten, so how do you answer the question? Say, could there be any loftier answer to that than, I'm a child of God and I represent him. And maybe today's the day for you to say, you know what, I read that communal confession and I, I, I've not been using my body the right way. The stuff that I've looked at has made me feel polluted, that I've been a terrible family member. I, I need a fresh start. Is there any way? Say, yes, yes, God's, God's put forth Jesus in his grace. Not because any of us are fantastic people, but God says, I'm calling you to myself. And you feel him tugging on your heart. Say, Jesus, I need you today. I'm a stubborn person and a prideful person. And I'm the last person that wants to surrender to the Galilean carpenter. But I know, I know he's real. And Jesus, I surrender to you today. And I want to live for you today. I hope that's you today. You hear nothing else. You give your life to Jesus. You have a purpose in him. You represent the king. And Christians, we're all priests. May we take that charge seriously again, not that we have the strength on our own to represent God, but that as we surrender to the great high priest, that in our feeble efforts by his spirit, we might win more to him. We're a holy nation, a royal priesthood. May many come to know Christ. That's what we're about as God's treasured possession. What a privilege, I'll pray. Father, this uh, very moving great commission that how silly of us to say that my purpose is in what I can do for a short time to do this task or that task. But rather, Lord, help us to see we're, in the, we're all in the people business, that we're about your business. As Jesus said in the temple, we're about our Father's business, that all those interactions we're going to have this week, that we would see ourselves as representing you, we don't have to string the right words together or, or have an education or be a Levite or whatever might default to our minds, but to say, Lord, I, I am a Christian. I've, I needed Jesus in my life. I need to be reconciled to my maker. Help us to communicate that to a lost and hurting generation and for whatever reason, again, in your kindness, not because we're the <laughs> numerous or powerful or good-looking or good, but you've called us to yourself. And in light of that, help us to be obedient to you so that we might fulfill this mighty task that you've given us for Christ's sake.